0: Hello, you're listening to the Adams and Hayes podcast.
1: This week, we look at health and safety in the news, discuss whether sustainability can go hand in hand with safety.
0: So without further ado, let's get into it.
1: So on this episode of Adams and Hayes podcast, we're delighted to have a special guest with us. We've dropped the Mythbusters section to give us a bit more time to speak to our guests, and we'll discuss health and safety in the news. So let's introduce our special guest. Please welcome the managing director of Dimension Health and Safety, one of IIRSM's 40 under 40 globally, HBF's nominated top 100 women in construction, 2023, an executive committee member of the Lancashire Occupational Health and Safety Group, Melissa Fazakale. Welcome, Melissa.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> Good to have you.
1: Fantastic.
2: So, how is everyone?
0: I'll I'll, um, I'll let Melissa go first. How How are you, Melissa?
2: I'm good, thank you. Um, yeah, really busy week, but do you know what? It's fantastic. Um, put a paw straight. Some, I'm celebrating my six months in business, actually, since going freelance. Um, oh, that's great news. Yeah, amazing news. So kind of had a reflection on the positives and negatives of that. Um, mostly positives, to be fair. Mostly positives. Mm. Obviously, a lot of hard work involved, but the kids are back at school. Great. That's good. Uh, keeping busy. Obviously, there's a lot going on in the health and safety world <laughs> at the minute. So, yeah, very occupied. How about mm. you guys?
0: Yeah, I am I am swamped. Uh, life is very busy, but enjoying it. I feel like, particularly in our own work at the moment, we're getting a lot of traction with things, which is really nice. I think there are a lot of health and safety professionals who will be able to appreciate that sometimes you can have months on end where you just feel like you're going around that revolving door of nothing um, and I certainly don't feel we're in that stage at the moment and um, although it's very busy it's really nice to be busy and to kind of be getting things over the line and completing things so I'm, I'm feeling grateful at the moment uh, a little bit tired um, but but grateful I'm good. Anthony how are you?
1: Good yeah yeah I'm good uh, like Melissa said kids back in school which is good news um, I thought that that would free up more time to do other stuff but As you've alluded to, work is really busy at the minute, which is really good because it shows that things are actually being done and we're getting stuff over the line. Um, You two are kind of already aware I'm winding down in my current role um, in order to pick up another role next month. Um, So I've kind of got that on my mind as well. I want to make sure that um, the place that I'm leaving at the minute, there's no loose ends and everything's kind of tied up um, so that I'm kind of comfortable um, hitting the ground running in the next role. So yeah, that's kind of where I am at the minute.
0: Before we jump in the news, and sorry, Melissa, we didn't prep you for this question, <laughs> but I think Ooh, you've been freelance for six months. I'd love to know what would be your number one piece of advice, having got to the end of six months, Ooh. for somebody that's maybe thinking about jumping in to going freelance in the health and safety world. What would, what would be the one thing you would tell them now, having done six months?
2: Thanks for that surprise question. Um, you're welcome. <laughs> I yeah, think that wasn't
1: very nice, was it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think I think my top bit of advice, and it's an old one, is just expect the unexpected. You know, the, mm. just to be versatile and dynamic in in what you're doing because you can have your diary planned out, like any other safety professional, to be honest. You can have your diary planned out and you can have the best intentions. But the chances there's always something that comes around or there's something that stumps you. Um, And your support network, huge, huge thing.
0: Mm. Get a good
2: support network behind you.
0: Amazing. Thank you. Great answer.
1: So each week we look back at the news and social media content to bring you two headlines that have stuck out the most to us.
0: So some weeks we might pick up on obvious health and safety news things that have come from uh, sort of IOS and, and other bodies like that or we might look at you know a standard news article that's come up on mainstream news that we think has got a little bit of a health and safety angle. So Anthony I think you're up first this week with an article well a number of articles that have been in the news i've actually had a number of people message me going please cover this on the podcast please talk about this so that's nice first of all we're getting some listener engagement um but yeah it's been a big one so over to you
1: it has yeah um people are probably already a little fed up about hearing this because it has been pretty much every headline um the government have released some more information about it and the thing that we're going to talk about is reinforced autoclave aerated concrete or rack, uh, which was seen as an innovative construction material um, when it was installed in the fifties up to the mid nineties. Um, the no- most of the install happened between the sixties and the seventies and then now showing signs of deterioration and the, the materials most commonly found uh, to construct a flat roof, which has also made it harder to access and survey. Um, RAC was first highlighted in a report uh, by the Standing Committee on Structural Safety back in 2019, although RAC has been banned for production in the UK since the mid 80s. Um, The Office of Government Property sent out a briefing to property leaders back in 2022 regarding the findings of RAC and the NHS and the MOD are also aware of the problem that they have, and ISTRT have a rack study group, so there's quite a lot of eyes already on this subject before uh, mainstream media got a hold of it. Um, it's still used in construction all over the world, however, as i already mentioned, production in the UK was stopped in the 80s, and it's still considered an appropriate construction material when it's properly designed, manufactured, installed and maintained. And from what I can find so far, there's around 152 schools that are known to have this material, with schools being the focus from the media. Out of the 22,000 properties that um, that department looks after, 152 schools is quite a small number. Um, Not taking away from the risk is still there. Um, So you can check whether you've got regular concrete or whether you've got rack installed uh, with either a screwdriver or a drill. If you kind of press it into the material and it gives way, you've got rack. Um, So it's more likely to be racked than traditional concrete. So, with all that in mind, what do we think about um, this so-called concrete crisis? Um, or do we think that the media is just whipping up a bit of hysteria? Um, we're not that far from a general election. I um, wonder if there's a little bit of kind of playing politics here. Or is this kind of a significant safety risk that that we know as safety professionals could have been managed?
2: I personally think there is a bit of... Um there's a bit of everything in that isn't there um like you've just mentioned you know obviously mm. we've got an election coming up and there's reporting it's perfect to like you've just said it's been looked into there's various bodies involved yet it came out in the press just before the schools were going back um but I do also think even though the numbers are relatively small compared to um, the whole the countries across the uh, across the country uh, schools across the country. Sorry, it's still a significant issue because mm. there's there's children, there's vulnerable people in those classrooms. So it's um it's something that does need to be taken seriously, and I think it's something that parents, teachers, bodies should all be aware of. So up until now, this hasn't been on my radar as a parent or a safety professional because I'm not involved in that kind of industry. So I think I'm grateful to, mm-hmm. the, to the media for bringing it to my attention. Um, but as with everything, I think there's a, va- a balanced viewpoint there, isn't there, about reading up and, and taking information um, almost with a pinch of salt, doing your own reading.
1: Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, um, Istrutty are looking at it, Ricks are looking at it, other organisations are looking at it um we're only kind of hearing about schools Well, we're only hearing about um public services we're hearing that the ministry of defense know that they've got it the nhs know that they have it schools know that they have it well they do now um what about all of the buildings that were constructed in that era that aren't publicly owned or managed
0: so what what would they have used rack to build is this you know, as soon as I was sort of reading through your notes the other day, the thing that jumped out to me was roofs and flat roofs. And straight away, I'm getting pictures of those signs that you see on the side of buildings saying, fragile roof, don't climb. Yeah. So for me, a material like that, thinking, please tell me they've only used it in the roof.
1: It's like a light breeze block for all intents and purposes. Um. Yeah. So it's a bit like, um, if you imagine like an aero bar where it's got bubbles in it, they they put air, yeah they aerated it in order to make the material lighter, um, which has obviously caused the structural weaknesses over time. Um, but I mean, these some of these things have been installed for fifty years or more, and would and now just showing signs of deterioration. So you could probably argue that it's done its job. For yeah, everything's got a shelf life, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, we were talking about a building the other day, weren't we? Where you, well, I can't remember now, but we were talking about some construction the other day that had been only intended to have been used for 15 years and the occupiers have been using it for 70. There's a lot of legacy construction sticking around where people are like, or at the time people who were building those things made the decision of, we need something quick. How often does that happen? We need something quick. We're going to use this material because it's quick and it's easy and it's you know it's there's cheap element and also we can we can sell it as innovative and and all the rest of it because we're we're actually only using it for fifteen years seventy years later you're still using the building
2: Can I just check something Anthony when you did the introduction on this, you said that the only way to find out if it's rack is to drill it and if it collapses it's rack. Uh,
1: there's one way of testing it there are other ways of testing it. you can do a visual survey and identify. That's definitely related to concrete. Um, But going off, um, I think it was Construction Magazine. Um, I think they spoke to either Ricks or iStrutty to say, well, how do we check for this? And they said, Mm. if you press a screwdriver into it, that's going to go. So to me, that sounds like a pretty weak material.
0: That's great yeah. advice. Presumably, you could use something like an ultrasound device or Technology other, of. You know, infra- yeah. I don't know if no, infrared wouldn't pick it up, but, you know. Um,
1: yeah, non-destructive methodology of testing. Yeah, but it just shows that how, how kind of weak this has become over time. If you can jab a screwdriver into it and it, it gives way.
0: So okay. to answer your question, I personally think this is a crisis. I think one school would be a problem. Uh, We're talking about children, young people using these um, establishments to learn and all the rest of it. Just one school for me would be unacceptable. So, yeah, I definitely think it's a crisis, the fact that there's 15. You and I use the example all the time, don't we, of the Titanic crossing the Atlantic. Nobody on the Titanic was turning around saying, well, you know, we have hit an iceberg, but we managed to get the first however many thousand of miles across the Atlantic without hitting anything. So can we just remember that we we were successful until we hit the iceberg?
1: <laughs> so um, as a safety professionals, let's kind of put this into a risk category. Um, if if a building was to collapse because of rack, that is yeah. high severity. And at the minute, the likelihood is, is increased. Mm. So from, from a risk perspective, yeah, this is high. <clears throat> yeah.
0: Melissa, concrete crisis or media whipping up hysteria?
2: Concrete crisis, I think. Absolutely. It's an issue that needs sorting. But I did just think then about um, a couple of years ago when there was a lot of media surrounding schools, again, with asbestos and obviously the Mm -hmm. potential exposure there. That's kind of gone away. So media interest how long that will last i have no idea but this issue obviously isn't new and it isn't going away
1: yeah and i'm in agreement i think yeah i think the media's done a good job of bringing it to people's attention um they are always going to put a slant on it but i think bringing it to people's attention is a good thing i think the fact that a lot of people have known about this for a long time and they're already steering groups and they're already surveying bodies that know that this is an issue that it's taken something to happen for people to kind of kick mm. into gear again. Um, mm. So I'm sure iStruti and um, Rick's and um, kind of the rest of the groups looking at this, the NHS, et cetera, are doing a really good job. But it takes something like this for um, things to re-engage. Mm. So yeah, I'm going yeah. with Concrete Crisis for this one.
0: So... My news story this week is the Rail Accident Investigation Bureau have just released their full report into the investigation that they carried out on the derailment of the Scotland Rail train in Stonehaven back in 2020. And I, I cover this for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's, I think, one of the things that's really interesting about this that will be interesting for some health and safety professionals is that the full report has been released so we don't always get that with a lot of the accidents that we see in the news particularly the high profile ones and Anthony I think in the last section you referred to this difference between when you've got a public sector issue versus a private sector issue a lot of the time if you see a private sector incident you don't see the incident report you might just get a little snippet on the HSE's website of saying they've been found guilty of this and we find them this amount and you know headline corrective actions so one of the things that's really interesting in this case and i think it's partly because it is a public body investigation that needs to be made available they have released the full investigation which um, it's very telling and it breaks down a lot of things. There are 14 recommendations. You can see every single recommendation. You can see how they've got to that. And I would thoroughly recommend that people go and read that to see actually the standard of scrutiny that a company is put under when things go wrong. Now, we don't know how much scrutiny goes on behind closed doors because in the private sector, a lot of that stuff is, is closed off. Um, And there's some, you know, that's another conversation, there's some interesting things in there in terms of, as a as a culture and as a a country, our approach to learning and sharing lessons learned in the private sector is very different from the public sector. So I think that's an interesting part. The other thing that I wanted to pick up from this story, and I'd be interested to hear uh, your thoughts, Anthony, Melissa, and and, and your thoughts, uh, for those that are listening, is it points to the fact that there was a design produced for the work that led to the landslip so for those that aren't aware what happened on in August 2020 was a train was moving back to Aberdeen having gone down towards Glasgow and there was a landslip on one part of the track the track was closed so the train had to move back to Aberdeen to to disembark the passengers and sort of cancel the rail on the way back there was another landslip on the as the trains moving back towards Aberdeen and this one caused the train to derail and when they looked at the causation of the derailment what had happened is they built a french drain to channel water runoff down a hill down an embankment into a river that ran then under a bridge um, over which the railway crossed now this french drain had not been built properly it had been designed to to the correct specification. But on the day that it was constructed on the on the days that it was constructed Carillion, which is a name that will send shivers up some people's spines, Carillion's contractors made a decision to build it differently. And they added elements in they changed the actual design slightly. um, And then the bits that they did build to design weren't built to the quality. They didn't provide any as-built drawings to the designer. So then Network Rail, the client, weren't able to manage that piece of, of infrastructure as something that was you know, built outside of spec, um, which one of the ways that you... It's not ideal when you build things out of spec, but sometimes it can be quite difficult to justify going back. There are contractual mechanisms that allow clients to force their contractors to do that that it can be really messy and particularly in an environment like rail when you need that rail back open back up so that you can provide the passenger transport it can be very difficult to justify closing an entire section of rail all over again to repeat quite a significant piece of civil infrastructure. I'm not making excuses but I can understand the the rationale and the thinking that went on behind closed doors in that case but the point being is that Carillion never provided that information to Network Rail. So Network Rail were never able to make any of those decisions. They genuinely uh, believed that that infrastructure was designed as it should have been. Yes, there were obviously some visual things that were out of place that they they probably should have picked up on in the 10 years from when it was built to when it failed. Um, But I think there's a really interesting part of this story, which is how often do we encounter issues in construction where the designer has said, build it one way and the contractor on site has gone, screw this, I'm going to do it my way. Um, And it it very much seems like that's the case in this situation. They've made a decision to build it their way um, and there's been no collaboration. There's been no communication between the contractor and the designer. And actually for a construction phase to work effectively and to deliver the safety it's intended to, there has to be communication and there has to be collaboration. You cannot have a designer throwing a design over the fence to a contractor and hoping for the best because worst case scenario, this is what happens.
2: So I've got a couple of thoughts on that, Dan. Firstly, great overview, great overview, loads of detail, loved it. Um, secondly, construction. <laughs> you know, the, the idea behind CDM that this kind of stuff wouldn't happen or it would be managed like you said if there were there were changes and those changes were communicated the end party would get their information but then I wondered if the report um, or what the requirements were around maintenance and inspection as well because if that you Mm. you know if there's a 10-year period there it's kind of easy to say well they installed it wrong but who's been responsible for all this time and have any checks being done in relation to design
0: yeah and i think it's a good question so what was picked up in the report is that uh, network rails maintenance inspection scheme because of the changes to the construction didn't cover the whole scope of the french drain so there's a little bit that kind of sits outside of their their remit as it were Um, and those that are familiar with rail will know that network rail have certain zones that go that is our area then they have like a shared area then they have an area that they need to be aware of that might be owned by somebody else and they kind of need to manage that land outside the rail infrastructure accordingly i think from what i've read in the synopsis and again i've I've only read the synopsis so in terms of detail to be able to give um, i need to come back to you on that one but what it looks like to me is yes it's a combination of both so no they didn't get the construction right but with a 10 year period there was ample time for somebody to go hang on a minute there's there's something wrong here and there were a few things that didn't necessarily indicate that the construction was incorrect but certainly should have indicated to network rail that some preventative maintenance needed to happen or maybe some parts of it needed to be um sort of looked at in more detail and those opportunities were also
1: missed going back to that point that there was 10 years that somebody could have identified that um, the French drain wasn't working the way that it should have been working. We don't know whether it was failing. We don't know whether um, it it could have been identified that there was a problem with it. It might have been working fine. However, there could have been a tipping point where it went from being fine to severely not being fine. Um, So, yeah, I I think that 10-year gap, I I know it's a long period, However, it's one drain of a massive national network. How easy would it have been for somebody to have said, actually, that's not doing what it should do?
0: So, yeah, I think that's a question that a lot of people will ask until they read the report. Um, Like, you know, it's one drain and, you know, is it just a freak accident? Actually, when you look at the news coverage from the day of the incident, a lot of it is we've experienced more rain. And this is Aberdeen, by the way. So, like, let's when they say we've had more rain than we would ever expect in the next 100 years, that means it's a lot of rain. Um, as Definitely. somebody who grew up grew up in on the northeast coast and regularly had um, summer holiday envy of my cousins down south <laughs> when they were like, oh, we're having a heat wave, and we were just being drenched every single day. <laughs> when they say there is more yeah. rain than we will experience in 100 years in Aberdeen, that is a lot of rain. Which would have, you know, would have caused, but again, when you go back to the design and you look at it, you can see that the design that Carillion had, or what they picked up in the investigation anyway, is the design that Carillion had then built to, rather than using the design that they were given, actually, that the design is flawed. So if you did have a freak, even if you're saying, oh, it's a freak, freak nature thing, the design should be able to deal with that.
1: So um, the main topic uh, for this episode is to have a bit of a conversation with Melissa. So Melissa, thank you for joining us today. Um, We're going to discuss sustainability versus safety and whether growth is required at all costs. So we're really interested to be discussing this topic with you.
2: Yeah, so I recently um, did um, a level three qualification in to at zero, um, which was very interesting. So we... We obviously talk through um, the changes that are needed and the ozone layer and all that good stuff, carbon reduction and everything. But as we were going through the course, um, I found a lot of the focus seemed to be this must be achieved with no kind of discussion around anything else, if that makes sense. So... There was no discussion around safety. There was no discussion around um, business continuity. There was, you know, it was very, very high level um, solutions, if you will. So it got me thinking about, okay, well, if we are saying that, right, let's change our whole fleet of company cars to electric vehicles. Great environmentally, obviously electric vehicles have got their own news around them. So we'll... <laughs> that could be another topic. Um... As yeah, Anthony, has Anthony topic. told
0: you to stay away from electric cars? No, but we... Because I, oh, yeah, we'll leave that one. <laughs> I, I, I could talk about the problems of electric cars all day and have done so. <laughs> okay,
2: so we'll just touch on it today, Dan. Calm <laughs> yourself down. <laughs> but, yeah, no. so you know if we if we turn around and say right okay well we've got we've got a business here and there's funding available for us to put ev charging points in our car park great this funding makes business sense we've got targets to meet in terms of co2 let's do it when does that conversation about safety start to come in when does the conversation about fire risk about people safety about property safety about um insurance liabilities and things like that it can't at the minute safety and sustainability seem to be separate projects and separate topics mm. and there doesn't seem to be any mm. um i'm not sure what the word is but then it's any kind of marriage between the two of them to say okay well you know as safety professionals we don't like to say an absolute no that's a hard line yes but mm. how can we do that safely um, and it, it kind of doesn't seem that way with sustainability at the moment so for me I wanted to ask you guys like in your experience and obviously what we see in the media and all the rest of that good stuff where where do you see safety and sustainability tying in to actually meet both goals
0: think it's a really interesting question for me sustainability sustainability is something that is sustainable that is and i think we tend to change words a lot to try and change the meaning but then people still use the old meaning so it's like there's not actually any point changing the word so i think a lot of the time we talk about sustainability and actually what we're talking about is the environment Mm -hmm. because when you think about the definition of sustainability that's something that can move forward and sustain itself and for me part of something being sustainable is the safety element so if you want something to work and you want something to you know achieve the goal of net zero or achieve the goal of managing the environment and that that to be a solution that's sustainable safety has to be a part of that it was interesting you picked up on the fire risk of, of EV charging and again I'm going to try really hard not to Derail the entire podcast into talking about EV cars, but I, during when I did my health and mm-hmm. safety apprenticeship, I was really lucky to to do that alongside um, a sort of a cross industry group of other apprentices doing the same thing in other industries. And One person was from Highways England, as it was now it's National Highways as it's now, and he was saying that one of the they were doing a risk assessment on how they manage EV cars that have caught fire and it's basically like it takes three days to make sure that the fire is out now that that's a risk assessment being carried out by a major infrastructure management company essentially that uh uh, having to manage that that you know potentially going to have cars on hard shoulders on fire you know where's the to, to local companies that are maybe looking to get EV charging points set up in their car parks, have they thought about what happens if there's a car on fire for three days in the car park and they can't move it? Exactly.
2: Yeah, great point. Great point. And I think touching on um, what you've just said, like with business disruption, you know, how many businesses have got a business continuity plan in place where they're actually thinking about not just the safety impact, but the business, the impact on the business, like you've just said, if if a company can't get into the car park for three days and it's you know it's deemed unsafe, the fire service are there. What are their employees doing? What's the business activities doing? What, are, and we know this: the cost of the lack of safety is significant compared to the cost of safety. And I think planning and foresight, and again, what we've said with the um, with the Carillion report coming out it's communication again everything floods back to communication and making sure all parties are involved who need to be involved
1: look at the other environmental um techniques that have been deployed throughout well globally really um wind farms take safety really seriously hydroelectric dams take safety really seriously Um, normally the schemes that come out that i've seen anyway take safety very seriously and go right we we are going to do this it will uh, reduce um, our emissions or it will provide cleaner energy into the grid um, but we need to do this safely i'm wondering whether um, we've just moved away from that too much and that the infrastructure that was considered risky, like putting a massive wind turbine up, um, it seemed to be a lesser risk if we were just installing some street furniture with an electric point on it. I'm wondering whether that's kind of the issue. Um, because I'm with Dan. Um, in order for something to be sustainable, it also needs to be safe. So it needs to go hand in hand. um. So, yeah, I'm wondering whether this is an overall sustainability conversation or a we've stepped away from safe sustainability because of the huge increase in demand of EV charging. Um, mm. Likewise, with Dan, I had a conversation at the last LOHSG AGM um, with somebody... Uh, we had a conversation about um, them working closely with Lancashire Fire Brigade in order to come up with a method of extinguishing EV charging fires. And again, they said it's a three day burn, we can't put it out. And I said, Well, what happens with an EV charging point in a multi story car park? Because that three day burn is going to exceed the temperature that concrete can handle. Therefore, you're probably looking at a structure fail. A structure fail of a car park is, that's quite scary. I see that as being actually scary. You, you, I'm not removing anything from the fact of an EV charging point next to a domestic property is going to have ramifications. An EV charging point in a, a regular work space car park is going to have ramifications. But for me, an EV charging point in a multi-story car park just puts the fear of God into me. Really do
0: uh, so we promised we wouldn't we wouldn't go on a rant about EV charging, and uh, I feel like we've um, we've we've possibly started to go down the rabbit hole. M- Melissa, as a as somebody who's working uh, as self employed as a consultant, it'd be interested to hear what conversations are you <clears throat> having with your clients at the moment about about this topic.
2: So business continuities. The big one, to be honest. Um, there's obviously since Grenfell there's a, obviously a lot of conversations around fire. Um, especially like Anton has just said in high rise. So my my past decade has been in facades and a lot of high rises. So at the minute, um, mm. I'm involved in reclads. So then you you know, with, we're talking about a building that's been deemed unsafe for fire. But then you've got the conflict of, okay, well, what's this going to look like in terms of environmentally future proofing? REV charges, I know I've got back on the sweet of chargers, charges, but REV charges going to then be part of this building that's been made safe. But then, like Anton has just said, if it's going to burn for three days, is it actually going to be structurally sound? I think mm-hmm. it raises more questions than anything. So it's a lot of theoretical conversations and a lot of desktop studies and um, there's like I said there's a lot of of pressure around fire at the minute so testing of systems and getting systems certified so I think it's risk assessment again isn't it I suppose it, it, it comes back to just assessing that risk and whether you know, nobody's going to go and install EV charges on a building that's already been deemed unsafe in terms of fire. That's just not going to happen. Um, mm, yeah. But then when you go back to, like, a private business who's got 50 employees in an office, great. We've got, we, we, you know, we can get funding for two EV charges. It's going to reduce our footprint, which is going to be great because then that'll look good for the company. Have you thought about the impact that it could have. Have you prepared for the emergency situations that you could encounter? Are you talking to the fire service? You know, because they do reach out to businesses. Have you had any significant changes? Well, if you've had EV charges installed, then yeah, you've got a significant fire change there. So speak mm-hmm. to the, you know, so speak to the um, local fire authorities so they know about those risks and what they're actually coming to. Communication again, getting all parties involved.
0: I was going to say, what what do you think is drive currently driving this push for sustainability at possibly the cost of safety?
2: So personally, there's there's pressure, and I don't pressure is probably wrong word, but there's uh, it's been highlighted with public procurement. So obviously, where the public money is going. Um, there's things like social value, sustainability are all waiting in tenders now. So it's about making sure that your own business is sustainable, because if you want to be on those tender lists, then you've got to be taking action and you've got to be, you know, contributing to the reduction of um, climate change and, and, and all that stuff. But, yeah, I think there's different pressures on on businesses to perform. Um, in various fields, but then obviously that will come with costs in terms of financial resources. Um, you know, work, decisions on where they're getting the materials from, decisions on mm. where they're getting um, labor from. So, there can be a requirement in the tender to have x x percentage of local labor. But if you're a skilled mm. trade, then is there, a, is there a, a chain, is there a, like a compromise between your good labor that you know is a little bit further away or the local labor that you've had so many issues with? There's just so many different pressures on businesses to kind of mm. perform in different fields. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that the tendering point's really interesting. And one, one thing I just want to to kind of pick back up on, which is I think what you were getting at is that businesses are pushing for sustainability now because there are going to be the opportunities for those, you know, businesses that are going to then enable other businesses to achieve sustainability. But the, the pressure for them to achieve that now is... Is kind of there's a deadline for you to get your tenders in there's a deadline for you to complete your pre-qualification questionnaires and if you don't get in for that you're going to miss the opportunity for this work which is is going to be quite lucrative because as we head towards 2030 there's going to be a big push for
1: that I, i found that really interesting from what melissa said um if you need to weigh up using that local contractor who you don't um have full confidence in and using that contractor that is further away, and you then have to take your scope three emissions into consideration. Mm -hmm. You're going to start not selecting the contractor that you want to do the work. So at what point do you turn around and go, client's duties under CDM, we didn't appoint the appropriate people to do that work, on the basis that we need to be cutting down scope three emissions? You're right, there's a a definite issue there between how much are you willing to accept as a reduction in safety for an improvement in sustainability. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate your feedback. If you have loved the podcast, please rate and leave a review. It really helps for people who might be interested in the podcast to find us. We're on Instagram, and X as Adams underscore Hayes. And if an email is more your thing, you can message us at podcast at uk. Feel free to get in contact with us if you have any feedback, whether it's positive or negative, or you'd like to suggest a topic for one of our features.
2: I have some feedback. Go on then, <laughs> It's good feedback. So this is the third episode. I genuinely think you guys are gonna uh, gonna smash this. You're gonna go far with this. So, for me, listening to something while I'm working, it generally takes up a little bit too much headspace, depending on what it is. And um, I know I contacted Anthony um, after the, after episode two and said it's I really really like the format of what you're doing because it's easy to listen to you guys. There isn't like too much chaos. The topics are really interesting and obviously i'm really grateful that you invited me on as well it's been really good speaking to you both
0: no it's been really good to have you melissa and i'm really interested to hear a lot about what you're doing Um, and i'm glad you don't think it's chaotic Uh, i think i'm an extremely chaotic person so for somebody to say i'm not (laughs) being chaotic is a massive uh, massive compliment um but for now, I think, uh, thank you so much for that feedback. And again, um, if you're listening and you have anything similar to, similar to what Melissa said, it's really good to hear that too. But for now, thank you and goodbye. Thank you to Melissa for joining us today. It's been great to have you. Um, and until next time, stay safe, stay healthy and stay well.